The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I have just one verse of Scripture to use for our text tonight. I want you to keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 12 because we will refer to it uh, as we go through the message tonight. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, which says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Our subject once again this evening is church membership, which we've taken from the S in the Baptist acrostic. This is the 18th message on the acrostic, and so I know that you are well familiar with the term, what I mean by this. And the S in the acrostic stands for a saved church membership, with the point being that it's impossible to be a part of the body of Christ without being a born-again Christian. Contrary to the teachings of Roman Catholicism and of many Protestants, we do not believe that it is possible to be included in the membership of the church unless you have made a personal confession of sin, that you have repented of your sins and professed personal faith in Jesus Christ. And that is opposed to the teachings of infant baptism for regeneration, as Catholics believe, and also against the Protestant belief that a baptized child becomes a part of the covenant community of believers when he is baptized. Only a saved church membership rightly constitutes a church. And to emphasize that point, a person is not saved by his baptism, but by personal commitment to Christ, repentance, faith, and baptism are prerequisites for church membership. Now, from this main point of salvation, we've expanded into other important areas of membership as taught by Baptists. We're not in perfect agreement um, about every one of these points, but for the most part, Baptist congregations are in agreement on the ways that we can be admitted into the membership of the church. And we discuss the command for Christians to associate in local bodies that are called churches and that these churches are bodies of Christ in their particular localities and each church is a complete body of Christ in that locality. And then we talked about qualifications for membership which are regeneration and confession, holiness and baptism. From there we moved on to admission into the church which is first through baptism and then we began a discussion of how you get from one church to another, transferring membership and so on. And then finally in the last message, um, I believe, what, what was it, two weeks ago, we went into the circumstances of dismissal from the church. How is it possible to get out of the church once you're in? And we found that there are only three possibilities for this. That is death, transfer of a letter, or by exclusion. And the last of those, exclusion, involves extreme disciplinary measures, and it's disgraceful to the one who is excluded. Well, this evening I want to conclude our messages on the S in the acrostic by examining one more area of church membership. And so this is the fifth part of our outline. I want to speak to you about connections in membership. Uh, Making connections through membership concerns the value of our Christian walk 
that God never intended that Christians would walk alone, but that it's good for each of us to have the love, the support, and guidance of other Christians. And so this evening I want to talk to you about why the Bible commands church membership, that is the usefulness of it for the Christian. What good is it for us? And why doesn't God want us to fight the good fight of faith from a solitary position, from our own little citadel without the help of other Christians? Well, there's some good reasons for it. Uh, God has designed the church to do his work in the world, and there's no one else that has the authority to do it. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul wrote that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is entrusted with upholding the truth, and the church itself is protected by the truth. And so it's not the church's job to invent truth. We learned that when we studied the B in the acrostic. Uh, our authority is the Bible and only the Bible. Uh, there is no other source of truth for us. So that means that the church itself cannot be the source of truth. But the church provides a foundation upon which the truth rests. Now if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, here we find how this foundation is laid. The Apostle Paul talks about the foundation of the church and what God has given in order to make the church strong and to uphold the truth. And so he says here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what God has. He has an organization. He has a superstructure that is intended to bring believers to maturity with the goal of unifying them in the faith. It's the church that provides what you need to have unity. It brings us together as we all walk together in the same scriptures, the same doctrine. We're unified because we believe the same things about the doctrines of the faith. Now, we are Baptist. We're not denominationalist because we believe that there is only one true church and that it is unified in these doctrines. And we believe that our churches are historically connected to Christ and to the apostles, that we do hold the truths that was once delivered to the saints, and we don't alter any of those truths. So the doctrine remains consistent with the original because this is what God has designed the church to do, and that is to uphold the truth. It's the pillars of the foundation upon which the truth stands. And so whenever truth, the truth itself, is separated from the church, the support is no longer there, and eventually truth will be perverted. Truth falls prey to opinions, and out of opinions come denominationalism and cults and dominant personalities that are controlling and subversive to the doctrines of truth. And these uh, other types of organizations and people will use truth to their own advantage. So God gave the church to guard against that. He gave us pastors and teachers to work within the framework of church organization to keep the truth on track through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look there in Ephesians chapter 4 again for just a minute, I, I just read verses 11 through 13, and I want to go on with this to show what preaching and teaching through the church will do. It spurs our growth in the Word. 
It brings us to the unity of the faith. So that verse number 14 says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. So this is what the church does for you. Verse 13 says that it will perfect you. That means it will bring you to maturity. It will make you complete. It says that you'll come to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And verse number 15 elaborates on that by saying that you will grow up unto him in all things. And so I'll put it to you simply that you can't get this far in your Christian life. You can't get to the place that these verses describe without the church. You can be saved without the church, but you're never going to grow without it. You'll never reach the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's not a personal opinion that I'm giving you. I strongly favor the church, of course, but this is not a personal opinion. This comes from the Word of God. Well, why can't you grow without the church? Well, simply, it's because it's God's means. The church is like rain on, on dry ground. There isn't another method in God's economy for the spiritual growth of his people. So the church is actually our pathway to sanctification. Now, you might think that you're a strong Christian and that you're immune to falling, but God says that you're not. And you might think that you can miss church as often as you like and you can still maintain your footing, but God says that you cannot. There's always a degree of backsliding that is associated by regularly missing church. When you miss church to do all the other things that you want to do, there's going to be a degree of backsliding there because this is the method that God uses to strengthen us and cause us to grow. Now, you can argue about it. You can argue that you're the same, that it doesn't matter, but not according to the Word of God. Without the church, Christianity is hollow it's a body with, without a skeleton, without support. It's a heap that falls to the ground. And so your, uh, your service to Christ becomes that way. And you just have to think about this. What am I as a Christian without the Lord's church? What am I as a Christian without working in God's church? Well, you can't work in His church if you aren't here. So you can boast in your own strength, but then that's all that you have. You have your own strength. Now, another way to put it is the way that Paul says in our text chapter that members of Christ's body are hands and feet and ears and eyes. What good are any of those without the body? An eye isn't any good unless it's attached to the optic nerve and then to the brain. There is no use for a severed hand or a severed ear. You can't grow unless you are together with the body. And likewise, the body does not receive all that it needs Unless all the body is functioning together, and that means all members of the body present. Now, let me go on to, to make some important uh, points about the value of being connected to the body. What is it that you get in being a member of the church? Well, the first thing that you get is what we're doing tonight, and that is the teaching of God's Word. Ephesians says that God has put pastors and teachers in the church to ground you in the faith. Paul said to Timothy and uh, wrote to the Corinthians rather in 1 Corinthians 4.17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul sent 
Timothy to Corinth to teach the same things that he taught. Same things that when he formed that church some years before that, uh, when he spent 18 months there teaching them the things of, of the Word of God, he sent Timothy back to tell him the same things. And this is what we do as pastors and teachers of God's Word. We have Paul's instructions, and we have Jesus' instructions, and Peter's instructions, and the prophets, and so on. And what we do regularly when we present the Word of God to you is to bring to your remembrance the teachings of the Bible's authors and teachers, the same things that we have learned from these things that are in the Bible. Now, the way that God has devised that we would do it is the most logical approach that we can use. How are we going to affect the most people with the teaching of God in the most efficient way? Well, that's to bring them together, to get everybody together, to bring us all to the unity of the faith. And so we assemble ourselves together to aid in the process of growth. Now, if it wasn't this way, you can imagine how difficult that it would be to deal with you if we had to do this with every person on an individual level. That'd be very difficult. I mean, what if I had to go through all 55 of these sermons that we're, that we're into right now? What if I had to go over that with each of you as an individual? Well, that'd be very difficult. It'd be impossible for me to do it. I might be able to do it with maybe eight of you, teach eight of you for an hour every day, and I'd cover eight people, but very soon I'd wear out, and so would you, and nobody would learn anything. And so the Word teaches us, God has given us the church in order to assemble people together so we can bring one another along together in the teaching of the faith. I mean, this is the basic idea that you have behind the public school, that you bring all the students together, you bring them all together, you teach them the same thing, you bring them through a process in a graded system until they learn enough to reach graduation. And if there's a student in that group that continually misses the instruction of the school, then he's going to be far behind, he won't advance, he won't understand what he's supposed to learn. And the same thing is through, true in the Christian church. The purpose is to get us all together so that we have the time to instruct everyone and bring everyone along together in the faith. So we all get the same instruction. And when someone misses, you can't advance. But you know that you miss. I know that you miss. And so we find ourselves backtracking over the same ground to catch people up. But this is what the church is to do. Bring people to the maturity of the faith through instruction. Now, one of the things that Ephesians 4 says is that pastors and teachers instruct in order to replicate themselves. We teach others to teach. We teach others to take on ministry. Now, for a long time, uh, we enforced a rule that said that all teachers have to attend all church services unless... God's providence made it unavoidable. And we became very lax in that rule. There isn't anyone to blame but me for that. But I want you to consider this. How can you miss the majority of church services and be qualified to teach? I mean, do you actually know enough that you can't learn any more from me? Are, are you getting the instructions that you need in order to teach others from some other place? If God said that the place to receive your instruction is the church, the question is, are you being obedient? And are you qualified to, to teach people if you take and leave church services as you please? How are you going to grow without the church when God said that you can't? You see, teachers never mature enough that they don't need more teaching. 
I can't even do that myself as a pastor. This is why I'm constantly studying all, all the time, going over things and learning things myself, because all of us need to be taught. And one of the best times of in-depth teaching is on Wednesday nights. Now, on Sundays, I don't believe that it's appropriate for me to stop in the middle of a sermon and answer questions. The public ministry, the the pulpit ministry, is not a discussion. This is the place for the authoritative proclamation of God's Word. But on Wednesday evenings, I allow discussion. The Word is taught, and then there's the opportunity to question and to discuss. There's a time of in-depth teaching, and then we can expand, and we can investigate what's been said with as much time as we need. And so, Sunday school teachers ought to be here for that kind of instruction. Pioneer Club teachers ought to be here. Anybody that has the responsibility to teach others ought to be here. Now, whether you teach adults or you teach little children, you ought to be here. Now, I know that there's some who can't. We understand that. But we also know that there are more who won't. And if you won't, then your credentials for the teacher, or as a teacher are, are not very good because you don't believe what the Bible says about the instruction of the church. Now, there isn't a real great mystery to this. I mean, I'm not telling you something that, that seems strange to your ears and you have to figure out. It's not public, uh, puzzling information that we're not sure about. Now, the Sunday school teacher who says, I don't need to be there because all I'm doing is teaching kids is wrong. Now, through the years, I've had many Sunday school teachers that came to me with questions that their students asked in the class and they didn't know how to answer them. And that's not a bad thing. That's not really a big problem. Kids often ask tough questions. And I have trouble myself sometimes trying to break things down, explain them on a kid's level, and sometimes kids will ask questions you never thought about. Talk to Thad sometime. I mean, it's difficult, uh, some of the questions that, that kids ask. Well, what should, what should teachers in the church be doing? Well, they should be in the services. They should be listening to the pastor preach. They, they should be listening and taking notes. Isn't that going to help you to be grounded better in the faith? Aren't you going to learn something doing that? There isn't anything wrong with the teacher telling a student, I don't know the answer to your question, but I will find out. But there's a whole lot wrong with a teacher who fumbles around and pretends that he knows the answer and gives some answer because he wants someone to think that he knows what he's talking about. Kids will find you out. They begin to understand the limit of your understanding. Now, you multiply that exponentially when you're dealing with adults. There are adults who know when you have reached the limit of your understanding. And it's not going to get any better if you're not receiving instruction to increase your understanding. Now, I, I don't boast myself in this, but if you, don't, if you have a disagreement about something, I've always said, come and talk to me about it. I've studied the material. The question is, have you? You need to know it. I've spent the time in it. Have you spent the time? Can anybody raise your hand and say that you know enough that you don't need any more instruction? You know enough that you don't need another opportunity to hear the Word of God? You, need, you know enough that the opportunity that the church provides on a Wednesday night is superfluous for you? Does anybody have that much knowledge? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, 
and in Ephesians chapter 4 and a dozen other places that we are encouraged to learn in the fellowship of the church. The apostolic precedent is set in Acts chapter 2. The church fellowshiped and continued in the apostles' doctrine. And when a student comes here and he looks around the room and he sees that his teacher is not in the service, that student's not going to have very much confidence in the teacher. You've missed the very basic fundamental of assembling and fellowshipping and receiving instruction. And so we have to ask, are you qualified to teach? Now looking back at the acrostic, we've also learned that we connect with the church in order to receive the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper can be administered only by the church. Now, if you are to obey the Lord in both of these, you can only do that by being a member of the Lord's church. Now, understanding, of course, that baptism is what brings us into membership, and so the church is under consideration before you ever get your body wet in the water. There isn't anybody else that can baptize you. But I've covered these subjects extensively in the past few weeks, so I don't need to... uh, belabor the point, but I do want to say something about the Lord's Supper, that the church is the exclusive place of the supper, and it is commanded that we regularly observe it. But there are some churches, church members who, who make little or no effort to schedule their other activities around the supper. Now, sometimes I realize that's hard because with little notice, I might have to reschedule the supper, but Almost always, the supper is going to go according to the schedule, and as Christians and members of the church, we ought to be here to observe it. But at the same time, it's hypocritical to make the team effort to be here in order to observe the Lord's Supper and to let the team down because you don't come to the other services. We have a few members of our church that will do this. They'll make sure that they get here for the Lord's Supper, but you don't see them any other time. Well, that's the classic example, probably the person that shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper at all, or at least should be in deep repentance when they come. So are you fit to take the Lord's Supper when you get here, or have you been disobedient not to be here at other times? So before we take the supper, we always have this period of introspection. Have you remembered to do this? I tell you, we need to confess our sins before we take the supper. Do you take the time to confess the sin of non-attendance? That's what I'm dealing with on Sunday mornings with the Sabbath day. Uh, Have you confessed that you could have been in church, but you chose not to? Have you confessed the sin of neglecting your spiritual gift that God says that you're to use for the good of the body? You can't use it if you're not here. Have you thought about confessing that sin before you come to the supper? Have you uh, decided that you ought to tell God you're sorry that you satisfied yourself instead of doing what he said to do on the Lord's day. So the ordinances, the church provides those for us. We can't get that anyplace else. Thirdly, we connect with the church for evangelism. Evangelism is the work of the church. That's made clear by the commission that was given by Christ in Matthew 28. I don't have time for us to go back into the exposition of that 28th chapter of Matthew like we did when we were going through the book. But uh, if you can think back to that time... I made the point when we were studying the commission that the Lord gave that to the church. He didn't give it to people as individuals. Now, of course, it's individuals that have to carry out the commission, but evangelism is only done under the auspices of the Lord's church. The church is the 
only organization that's authorized to evangelize. So the, the New Testament doesn't count, countenance any other organization but the church. And so there's no thought that evangelism will be separated from it. It's not going to be done by anyone that the Lord hasn't commissioned. Now let me give you an example because this has come up, come up just recently. Uh, generally speaking, there is a, there's a good group of men who are involved in a very good cause of distributing Bibles. Some of you may be familiar with the Gideons. Uh, they were organized at the end of the uh, 19th century, and over the past a little bit over 100 years, uh, they've given out over 2 billion copies of the Scriptures. Now, I don't think that any of us would fault someone for distributing Bibles to people, although at times we might be concerned about some of the uh, translations that they use. And as a child, uh, many of you have probably received a Gideon Bible in your school. How many of you got one of those? Most people, well, really that few people? You didn't get a Gideon Bible when you are in school? Wow, that's strange. That's California for you, I guess. Um, but uh, in our schools, we always got a copy of a, of a Gideon Bible. When we were in sixth grade, they always, fifth and sixth grade, they always came and passed out Bibles at the school. But uh, Gideons have done that for years. There are many soldiers that have carried Gideon Bibles into battle. Uh, most hotel rooms that you go into have a Gideon Bible in the drawer next to the bed. You don't see it as much as you used to, or uh, sometimes that's missing. Uh, the Gideon representative that was here a few weeks ago told me that the Grayton Resort requested Gideon Bibles for their hotel rooms. I said, well, they sure do need it over there, so make sure that they get them. Uh, so who, who would fault anybody for distributing Bibles? Well, my problem with the Gideons is not the distribution of Bibles. My problem is that there is a diverse group of men that call themselves the arm of the church, an arm of the church, and their attempts at evangelism. The official documentation of their organization says that they are committed to Bible distribution and evangelism. And you think, well, why is that bad? I mean, they're going to tell people about Christ. They're going to give them a Bible. But the question is, where is there in the Bible any authority for a parachurch organization to evangelize? Now, we have to remember this, that whenever the truth is taken out from the support of the truth, the truth will eventually fall. Truth will not prevail. Now, I'm not going to go into this now, but I've always had a problem with those who present a gospel that doesn't include repentance from sin, a radical change of life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Many years ago, when I was a young man, I became a member of the Gideons. And I was honored to be asked to do it, uh, to be accepted into the organization. And so I began to attend the meetings, and I was assimilated into what the Gideons call camps, and in these camps, there is a hodgepodge of Christians from many denominational churches. Now, my particular problem with this was that I was in a camp that had many members, many men who were members of the Church of Christ. Now, you think for a minute how different the gospel of the Church of Christ is to the gospel that is preached in the Baptist Church. The Church of Christ has the Galatians 1 problem. That's a gospel that Paul said is not a gospel at all. It's a gospel that he anathematized because it's a Pelagian gospel of work salvation. It's a salvation, they say, that can be lost unless it's maintained by human effort. Now, my problem then was I was put into a camp to pray with, to fellowship with, to support and work with men who were preaching a false gospel. 
And then aside from that, there was the problem of preaching the gospel light. And by that, I mean a gospel that doesn't have any substance to it. A gospel that may be preached without repentance. When I evangelize, the goal is to win people to Christ. You can only do that with the true gospel. Then secondly, the goal is not to leave them there after they've been evangelized, but to lead them into a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament church does that. Parachurch organizations do not do that. That's the reason why I'm not a Gideon. I'm in favor of every Gideon being a member of a Baptist church. I'm exclusive that way because I believe that Christ began only one church. He's exclusive with the church. Now, I covered that in the teaching of biblical authority. And would I be making an outlandish statement because I want to make everybody that I meet a Baptist and I think they ought to be Baptist? Well, if, if, if I'm making a foolish statement, then we ought to go out there and rub Baptists off the sign outside. I mean, this is what we are, aren't we? This is what we teach people. We want them to become Baptists. We're convicted uh, of this matter that we have the truth in our church. And I believe that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. So why would I ever want to mix up that message of evangelism and compromise that message with something that's not true? And I know that uh, they're not going to be happy with me and my promotion of Baptist beliefs. So I couldn't stay in that. Um, if they passed out Bibles and they referred people to true churches, or if they were at least clear about this, that you can't be a Gideon unless you ascribe to a statement of faith that denies baptismal regeneration, that demands repentance and faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and teaches that salvation is secure and to reject the idea of infant baptism and, 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 and. And you get the picture. You see, the gospel is not to be taken away from the pillar and the ground because the gospel always ends up being sold short. It becomes corrupted and counterproductive. And so if you want to fulfill the commission, if you want to pe put people on the right track towards Jesus Christ, get them into the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, only the true church has the real desire to do biblical evangelism. Now finally, let me summarize what we've been studying in the Baptist acrostic for several weeks of discussion of church membership. And this will help us with the S, uh, a saved church membership. And let me just talk to you for a few minutes as we conclude about the personal benefits of church membership. Personal benefits. What do we get? First of all, we get identification. On the sign outside, it says Berean Baptist Church. Admittedly, there are people that pass the sign every day. They have no idea what Berean means. And some have asked... And they said, what do you mean, Berean? Is that some kind of special division of Baptist? And I usually say, well, in a way, yes, we are. We are special because we're one of the few Baptist churches that is actually historical Baptist. Uh, we search the scriptures for faith and practice. We don't go to the purpose-driven church or the latest uh, church growth fad to find out what we do. We're just kind of peculiar that way. We're people that are unashamed to identify with Christ. We're not secret Christians. Our neighbors see us get into our cars on Sunday mornings with the Bible under our hand. People see our cars in the parking lot of the church. And we identify with Christ in that way. But more importantly, we are identified with Christ by being a part of his body. 
That we are banded together, we are covenanted together in the gospel. We are committed to the help and growth of Christians. We've been baptized to identify that we become part of the Lord's church in order to evangelize and to perpetuate the church according to his commission. And secondly, our personal benefit is growth. We talked about that a moment ago. Growth. We grow in the environment of shared Christian fellowship. We're brought into maturity, to the unity of the faith, through the teachings that are provided by the church. Our sanctification is dependent upon how often we hear and obey the Word of God. See, the church is the key element in God's method of growth. It's the water on the parched ground that showers us with all the nutrients that we need for our growth. Then thirdly, the church provides a sense of belonging. Christians don't do well in isolation. An isolated Christian is a lonely Christian. We have been made for fellowship. We thrive on that. We become a part of God's plan in the New Testament era. And if you take a Christian out of the church, it's like you're taking a fish out of the water. It, it just doesn't work. It, it doesn't function well. Now, what do you get if you go to church, but you don't join it? That's like pressing your nose up against the window and watching all the rest of the kids play. It's like an orphan that goes out on a Christmas Eve and watches a family through a window pick out all their Christmas gifts and love each other's company and do what they do on Christmas time and not to have any real part of all of that, not to feel like you are a part of it. This is part of what you get in being a member of the church. You get the intimacy of being in, in the family. When you become a member, you're a part of this family. In our text chapter, Paul explains that we get personal care. He says in verse 26, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, you might notice the verses that come before that, that in the body, you'll find that there are some that are poor, there are some who may be handicapped, some may be overlooked by the world and are shut out because they don't measure up to the world's standards. But the church doesn't care anything for that kind of an attitude. There aren't any that are neglected in the church. Everyone has a function to perform, and that gives every person who is a member of the Lord's body worth. Every person is worth something to the body of Christ. And then Paul talks about parts of the body that don't show. He says they're covered up. But does that make them any less necessary? This is what he says about those parts in Christ's body. He says, Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need. But God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. So you can be sure that no matter how you fit into the body, that you will be respected and that you are necessary to the function of the body. There aren't any unimportant parts of the body of Christ. Now you think about this, where, where else would you ever get that level of recognition? Where do you get that? Your workplace doesn't give that to you. Now, the government says that employers can't discriminate, but they do, don't they? 
If you're too old, you might not get a job. If you're too ugly, you won't sit at the receptionist's desk. If you can't speak clearly, you don't get to answer the phone. If you have arthritis, you're not going to be programming computers. You're not going to be the salesperson on the floor if your clothes are outdated and old-fashioned. But the church doesn't care anything about those things. God looks on the heart. And so the saved church member is going to be treated as God treats those who have a right heart. And so this is the place that you get the feeling that you're really part of something significant. And there isn't anything more significant than the Lord's church. If you want to serve the Lord, you will fit in here. Fourthly, is commitment. Others commit to you as helpers, as compassionate and caring, as prayer partners, as brothers and sisters. You get that kind of personal commitment, and then you also get to personally commit yourself to them. And as you do, your church membership is a commitment to Christ. Christ said, if you love me, if you're my followers, then you will obey me. And there is no way to know Christ other than to know him in the word and to know his people. To commit to Christ is to commit to his people. You can't love Christ without doing that. And so the church becomes the place that you show that you truly are a Christian. The commitment shows it. You never want to say that you're committed to Christ without fulfilling the duty that you have to other Christians. And the church provides the opportunity for you to do it. That leads me, fifthly, to responsibility. You need to recognize responsibility. A Christian that's out of the church has, outside of the church, has no accountability, thus no responsibility. And some like it that way. You find some, some Christians who want to be members of big, big churches because they get lost in the church. Nobody even knows they're there. Nobody's going to ask them to do anything. Nobody knows anything about them. A church membership brings responsibility and accountability. When you become a member of the church, you have to be ready to go to work. You sign up for that because Christians are made to serve. When you put your name on the dotted line, figuratively, did you not get that part? Is that a piece that you didn't understand? You were born again, and you were born into the slavery of the master. You belong to him, and you must serve. And the place of service is the church. Do you know this? The church is the only field that God has. It's the only place that he provides for you to work. You're to serve him well in his church because you're going to give an account of your stewardship. And if you haven't done anything, then how do you think the account of stewardship is going to go? God says, get out into the field, go to work. A slothful, immature Christian is one who lays out of church and he's never going to be able to bring in the fruits from the field. So the church is your opportunity to be pleasing to Christ by working out the responsibility that's been laid upon you through the gospel. And then lastly is effectiveness. The church makes you significantly more effective. By yourself, you're insignificant. You're not going to accomplish very much by yourself. You're not going to have very much influence. There isn't much light in one little candle. Now, they used to measure light by candle power. I think that term may be obsolete now. But in a lighthouse, the strength of the lighthouse was measured by its candle power. How much good is a lighthouse that has one candle power? 
well, a sailor out in danger of reef and rocks is not going to be able to see a light like that. And so you have to have something like a million candle power to enable that sailor to get home. And that's what the church does for you. You put your light with dozens of other lights and you put all of that together and it makes a difference. Now, another analogy, the church is a mighty army when we're together. We, we get things done. One, one soldier fighting against Satan, the host of Satan, doesn't get very far. But Christ said that his church, didn't he say this? The church is not going to be overcome by Satan. That we will defeat him by pulling down his strongholds. We are effective when we are together. So these are personal benefits that we get from church membership. It's a blessing. It's a privilege to be a member of the New Testament church. Every one of us ought to appreciate the privilege that we have of being a part of the Lord's church. Appreciate that privilege and thank God for this, that you have been made eligible for membership in only one way, and that is you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. A saved church membership. That's the only kind that God has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, thanking you for the opportunity to look in your word for just a few minutes tonight. We thank you, Lord, for our church. What a great privilege that we have to come together, to sit together, to fellowship with one another, and to open the Bible, to learn from the word. And as we do, we learn so much more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would lay it upon the hearts of every member to be servants, to be good stewards of the manifold blessings of God. So many things that you've done for us. One day we will give an account. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give that account of the deeds that we have done in our body. And I do pray, Lord, that it will be a good accounting because we've dedicated ourselves to love and worship you and to honor you and then to be in fellowship with other members of our church. Help us to appreciate the blessed privilege that we have of being your people in your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.